please open your Bibles, if you would, to the 13th Psalm. The text is going to be on the screen, um, and we're going to be looking at a few other texts this morning as well. So I would encourage you uh, to have your Bible open to Psalm 13, and then the other texts will be up here as we go, but you can keep it open to Psalm 13, and and the other stuff will be on the screen. But we're beginning then uh, with verse 1. To the choir master, which again at the very least means they sang this one frequently, a psalm of David. How long, O Yahweh, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Most of you probably know that this, is, uh, this sermon this morning is, is part two, kind of unintentionally, and that I started writing the sermon on Psalm 13 and then had too much to work with, so I split it into two sermons. Uh, and so, uh, just by way of reminder and recap, what I focused on last Sunday is that God has given us so- a psalm like this and other ones like it to know how to cry out to God, even how to make appropriate demands from God. Verse, um, sorry, lost my, there we go. Verse three: Consider and answer me. Right, light up my eyes, lest my enemies say, lest my foes rejoice, and so on. And then God also gives us a psalm like this to trust in Him. Verses five and six. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. And what I talked to you about last week, last Sunday, is that our songs, our music, the stuff that we sing, functions in many ways as a dictionary. That is, uh, or maybe a a vocabulary guide. I'm not sure what the best metaphor is. What I'm trying to say is that your songs teach you how to talk. And they teach you how to feel. And they teach you how to think. And how to reason. And how to love. And what to expect from your life and the people in it. Do songs really do all that? Yes, they do. Now, not because you make a conscious decision about it. You don't hear a song on the radio and then say to yourself, I shall now use these lyrics as a way to measure my experiences and construct my expectations of myself and others in the world. You don't say that or decide it with that kind of clarity. That's precisely why it's so powerful. It's more subtle than that. And what we explored last week is that God has given us these songs in the middle of the Bible because He wants us to think and talk and reason and love like this. He wants us to expect from Him and others in accordance with the words we find here. So maybe think about it this way. Paul uses that uh, uh, God being the potter metaphor in in Romans 9. If God is a potter... The Psalter, the book of Psalms, is one of God's primary shaping tools, if you like. And so we begin again in verse 1. How long, O Lord, David asks four times, how long? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? Again, the idea there being, I, have, I, I would talk to you if you would answer. 
I've had no answer from you, so I'm just talking to myself. And I told you last week that some of you, especially if you've walked through seasons of depression, know what that is like. To have only your own voice in your head, you know actually how damaging that can be. Have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And so we have this, again, clear statements of of a demand from David asking God, how long is this going to go on? How long have you forgotten me? And David doesn't say, how long have you forgotten me? Oh, wait, no, I know my systematic theology. God does not forget his people. Sorry about that. No, he cries out to God in the earnestness and honestness of his heart. And this is what he says. Now consider, he then says, consider, verse 3, and answer me, O Lord my God. Gary Smith pointed out to me, one of the important things you want to catch when you read the Psalms, uh, especially ones like this, is the first person, right? And so it is, it is sometimes easy for us to, to read the Psalms, even to sing them in terms of like, yeah, this is for us, it's for our body, it's for our people, it's for our congregation. But a, a lot of the Psalms are in the first person for this reason, because when you start talking about them, it's suddenly between you and the Lord. But here's David saying, God, you must answer me. How can David speak in this way? Like verse 3, consider and answer me. That's a demand. Is it because David is special that he can talk to God like this? Well, I mean, David is special, but no. Is it because he's a king? Well, I think that's important here, but also no. David is able to call on God and say, consider me and answer me because God has made a covenant with him. In fact, whenever you see steadfast love in the Bible, verse 5, it would be entirely appropriate to translate it covenant love. Love that flows out of the covenant God has made. There's a reason David can call God in verse 3, my God, which should surprise you because it's like he just got done talking about how this God's forgetting him. But then verse 3, consider and answer me, my God. That hasn't changed. There's a reason he can say, I've trusted in your steadfast covenant love because God has made promises. Here's the point I'm trying to get at. The covenant promises of God brought together with the covenant love of God should transform the way you pray. I I have more to say about this. But the covenant love of God brought together with the covenant promises of God, and you might say that the love is one of the promises and you'd be right, but that should transform the way you pray because, here's the reason, the kind of God that you imagine in your head will shape the way you pray to that God. right? The kind of God, however you imagine God to be, which by the way is shaped by your singing, let me just give that one away, okay? the, however you imagine God to be in your head, that's going to shape the way you pray. That's, that's inevitable. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew about a master of a house who gave three of his servants various amounts of money. You're, you're probably familiar with it. Two of them took the money and figured out how to be really productive with it. They came back with more, basically. One of them, though, if we can go to that text in Matthew. Sorry, I should have given you a better heads up than that, Jeremiah. We get to this third one, and he says, I was afraid I went and hid your talent. That's a term for for money. I went and hid your money in the ground. Here, take what is yours. And then the master's response is, alarming his master answered him you wicked and slothful wicked and lazy servant 
You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. It's a rhetorical question. Now, that seems maybe like a bit of an overreaction, right? The master comes back. The servant says, here's the money you gave me. It's the exact same amount. Take back what's yours. And the master of the house gets really angry. I mean, why is he angry? He got every penny of his money back, didn't he? Look at verse 26 carefully, though. Again, Jeremiah, I apologize. (laughs) You knew that I reap where I haven't sown. You knew that I gathered where I scattered no seed. The reason why the guy hid his master's money in the ground and did nothing with it is because he hated his master. That's the point. He looked at the master's free gift and all he saw was a cold demand and obligation. And he said, to heck with that guy. He's not going to get anything off of me and my sweat and my time and my work. And when the master comes back, he says, take what's yours. Right? You're not going to make any profit off of me. The obvious application then is that this is precisely how some see God. This is precisely how you might be tempted in certain seasons to see your God. A stingy and greedy egotist who demands much from you and gives very little. And if you believe that about God, it will empty your prayer life of every bit of its joy and vitality. Your prayers will be thin and weak because there is no covenant love underneath your prayers. That is not how David prays. Look at it. Verse 5. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I want, I want you to see that when we deal in life with all kinds of afflictions that make us want to cry out with the words of verse 1 and 2, and then you ought to, I know that in preaching this, I know and as I was preparing it this week, I was thinking that some of you have walked through some really terrible things. And that is part of the way of Jesus. As it were, in heaven on His throne, distributing crosses for His people to bear. But He has told you what to do with them. Now, we don't always know why afflictions occur. In fact, look, we often don't know why afflictions occur. But we can always confidently say and sing, this trial is for my good. Okay, And that good is conformity to the image of Jesus on the last day. 17th century English author John Trapp once said, A man who is on the road to his coronation does not think much of a little rain on the way. A man who's on the way to his coronation does not think much of a little rain along the way. Sounds like Paul, right? Our, our present affliction is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What I'm trying to get you to see is that the orientation of your heart in the midst of the affliction is not, God has given me this affliction, so I just better shut up and be really stoic about it. Is that what you see in the psalm, for heaven's sake? Right? David is, as it were, emoting all over the place. No, you're not a plank of wood, dearly beloved. God says, cry out to me. I don't know how. God says, I know. Here are words. Right here. 
They're even in the first person for you for heaven's sake. And those words will take you through the process, through the motions, through the work of, of the, if, if you like, the, the, the heart work that your soul actually needs. How long, O Lord, hear me, O Lord, I will trust and sing. And, and we've got to make room for the whole psalm. You remember I, I talked about that last Sunday. Singing only part of this psalm would be incomplete. You notice that David says in verse 5, My heart shall rejoice. Okay? I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Which has similar verbiage to verse 2. How long will I have sorrow in my heart all the day? Okay? So both one, one is sorrow in my heart all the day. The other one is my heart is rejoicing. My heart will go from being a cup filled with sorrow to a cup filled with rejoicing. It will. Not sure precisely when, but it will. And what learning the Psalms does for us is it will steady our grumbling. It will steady your grumbling. It will, it will curb your bitterness. And some of you need to square with whether or not you actually want God to do that. Because for some of you, a call to trust and to sing and rejoice is terrifying or it makes you really mad because you're dealing with resentment toward God over what you've had to endure. And part of this psalm makes you mad. You want to rip out verses 5 and 6. But the psalms are meant to recalibrate your emotions that you're too busy worshiping. And they will arm you so that you can actually fight like a Christian. Not with cold endurance and not with a mechanized process. So often when we're in the middle of affliction, it's almost like we want to crack the code of the affliction so that it'll stop. But you're not in the middle of a computer code, you're in the middle of a story. And I don't know which chapter it is, but I do know how it ends, and so do you, Christian. And so what psalms like this do is they take us through the one of the chapters. In the best sort of way. In the best sort of way, they take you through the motions. I know going through the motions is a modern way of saying going through actions without the heart. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about going through the motions in a way that actually uh, shapes, if I can use this term, like spiritual muscle memory. So I remember... In, in college, I spent a couple of years, a couple of years taking a, a, a martial arts class because I needed an extra credit, and I found out that you could actually get away with that for college credit. And part of martial arts, like like you know, karate or taekwondo or whatever, people think, well, you take that to learn how to fight and how to defend. That's certainly the most obvious part of it, but a significant part of it, the idea is you're learning how to control and how to use your own body, and how to be aware of the space around you. And I remember having to do these exercises, like, like blocking and return exercises that was the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. We just spend like 45 minutes to an hour doing the same stupid swipe jab motion. It was maddening. Like at first it was cool because you felt like you were training to fight, but after about 40 minutes of it, you've had quite enough. The same maneuver over and over again. It gets boring. (laughs) Until the day comes where you have to speed everything up (laughs) and you don't get to slow it down in the practice round. 
and you have to train in real time. What happens at that point is that muscle memory kicks in. And that thing that you've done 700 times for an hour, you don't even have to think about it. It just happens. That's singing. That's liturgy. That's confessing our sins. That's celebrating forgiveness. That's that same motion that we're doing over and over again. If I can, it's, it's martial art for your soul. When the storms of life come, here's the thing. Will Smith taught me this. When the storms of life come, you will not rise to the challenge. You will only rise to the level of your training. When it comes time to pray and to wait and to wait and to wait for an answer and to exercise that kind of patience and not to be overcome with impatient bitterness and rage, Not to see your soul shrivel up under the heat of trial. You will not rise to the challenge. You will only rise to the level of your training. That's the reason for singing. It's the reason for liturgy. It's the reason for psalms. It's the reason for catechisms. It's the reason for taking and eating, beloved. For feasting. For praying together. For learning together. For memorizing Scripture. For getting on a reading plan. (laughs) Because when dark days come, like we just prayed about, our courage will only rise to the level of our training. I hope you take that seriously. I have some more thoughts on this matter before we finish up. Uh, James chapter 1 is our next text. Why don't you put that up there? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So, one thing I said last week is that when we Come to something like Psalm 13. Again, you want to sing the whole thing rather than take one part of it out of context. So what's the context here in in James? I know it's not a song, but let's just talk about it for a second. The context is when trial comes. I hope we can all agree on that. James says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So James is talking about trials. And James says, count it all what? Joy. Say it like you believe it. Count it all what? Joy. Joy. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. James says count it all joy. Look at that affliction. Look at that trial when it's still 50 yards out, heading straight for you. And you roll up your sleeves and you say, all right, let's go. Good. Knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. That is all that God meant for you to be, or in other words, lacking in nothing. It's two ways of saying the same thing. Fully equipped for what God has called you to be. Steadfastness. Steadfastness. Steadfastness is what he's getting at here. This is a, that is a steadiness that is rooted in biblical joy. And biblical joy does not mean giggling all the time. Okay? When we talk about joy, that's not what we're talking about. We're not just talking about a a sort of affectation of happiness. It means that you are satisfied, and I mean fiercely satisfied, for all that God is for you in Jesus. 
Because in the midst of your affliction, you, son or daughter of the Almighty, can cry out, Consider me and answer me, O Lord my God. And the steadfast joy is, the, the, if you want to put it this way, the road to the steadfast joy is the road that happens between verse 1 of Psalm 13 and verse 6 of Psalm 13. So what does James say after this? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generally to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, I think sometimes we might take this a little bit out of context because, and, and just you know, have it by itself. But in the context of James 1, the focus is on the trials, right? That's why I started up there. So, so wisdom about what exactly? What is it that the wisdom that James thinks that Christians might be lacking and need to ask for? Good news, wisdom, it's wisdom about one of the most vexing, confusing things in the entire world, which is how to be thankful in the midst of various trials. That sounds really hard. Do you need wisdom for that? I do. <laughs> You'd better. <laughs> Various trials, he says. Oh, I'm sick again. And I'm tired of being sick. Oh, my kids are sick with RSV. That was not on the agenda. Right as I have to fly across the ocean. Or I lost my brother way too early. Or I suddenly can't remember how to walk. It was Rachel Job. Or my husband is a beast. Or my wife is a she-beast. <laughs> and I've prayed and prayed and they won't change. And he refuses to love me and instead he just neglects me. She won't change. She refuses to respect me. Instead she just constantly belittles and mocks me. Or my kids won't change and they refuse to repent and just remain stiff-necked and stubborn as a mule with an attitude. My plans got interrupted. My dreams got busted. Or right now, my retirement is tanking. Anybody ready to say, I've got the wisdom to navigate all that without any problem? Well, when those various trials come, there's good news for you, Christian. God means to give it to you. He means to give it to you. So you can navigate it. And on top, on top of that, He's given you 150 songs to navigate the depths of your affliction and grief and confusion. So how many do we know? How many are like the sword at our side? Ready to fight. How many are like a shield slung around our shoulder ready for when the fire comes? It's remarkable that the God of heaven, the maker of all things, the sustainer of the photosynthesis that is strengthening every blade of grass right now on our front lawn, all to declare the glories of its Maker. That God stoops down to teach you how to complain in the midst of your hurt, in the midst of your heartache. We often want to complain on our terms. God says, no, I'm going to teach you how to complain. <laughs> I'm going to teach you how to complain correctly. I'm going to give you a dictionary for that. I'm going to give you a vocabulary book for that. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be a lot harder if you try to make it up yourself, though. 
Before we wrap this up, I want you also to go to, we're also going to go to Romans 5. Why don't we go there now? (coughs) Not only that, Paul says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Same kind of thing as James, isn't it? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now, we'll we'll go here again. In your flesh, (laughs) in your flesh, doesn't the first part of that kind of make you mad? We rejoice in our sufferings. Do we though? Like, I just, I read that, I, I read that even just in preparing for the sermon. I read the bit in Romans 5, and I'm like, oh, like there's, in my flesh, there's just pure unvarnished resistance to that. But, <coughs> be encouraged, that's not the end of the passage. It's not, rejoice in your tribulations, go. <laughs> rejoice in your tribulations. Now put on a smile, figure it out, suck it up, just go do it. Go, go rejoice. Go on. <laughs> go on, Rejoice. It's rejoice in our suffering because we know something about our suffering. We know that suffering produces endurance. We know that. We know that endurance produces character. We know that. Character makes us hope. It makes us hope like David in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 13. And we find through, if you like, the martial art exercises of your soul that we are able to find our steadfastness our steadiness, our character, our hope, our joy in this One who loves us because His steadfast covenant love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And we start praying like David, Lord, I'm coming back to You again. I'm back again. I'm back again to complain as You've taught me. (coughs) Do you see my enemies, Lord? Look what they're doing. I'm going to narrate to you what they're doing. It's verse 4. And then we say, but I'm going to sing. And I will keep singing. And I will be vindicated. You will answer me. God means to teach us how to talk. He wants us to talk like this. To sing like this. To pray like this. To cry like this. And to fight like this. And this is a magnificent mercy. Because... When we know what to say, and I would ask you to follow me closely here, okay? When we know what to say, we can say it. Do I need to repeat that for those of you who are taking notes? When we know what to say, we can say it. The Psalms give you an articulated heartache, an articulated hope, an articulated plea, an articulated joy, and it will enable your heart to to lift up those things, if you like, to get them out so your heart doesn't explode. And so I want to ask you, dear congregation of Grace Presbyterian Church, what if there is a way of singing and praying that the American church of the 21st century has largely forgotten how to do? What if one of Satan's greatest accomplishments of the last 200 years was taking our war songs away. Taking our battle cries away. Taking them off our lips and convincing us we had to make it up ourselves as we gasp for air in the middle of our affliction. So here's a question for you. (laughs) Do you know the trial 
you will be going through six months from today? I'm going to guess probably not. (laughs) I don't mean to be the preacher who asks and answers all the questions, but I'm guessing you don't know what trial you'll be facing six months from now. God does. And He's got a psalm for it. So I ask you, you want to learn that today? Or you want to learn it in five years? When you'll say, that's in there? I wish I had known that was in there five years ago, four, months and si- four years and six months ago. So let's learn together. Sing together. Be trained up in this together for the sake of our steadfastness, which produces character, which produces hope, that does not and will not and cannot put us to shame. Because we have a God who hears. David could say that with clarity in Psalm 13. How much more can you on the other side of the cross? The cross of Jesus who cries out to His Father with the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like a blend of the first half of Psalm 13. The first three verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Jesus Christ is the true and better psalm singer, the true and better King David, great David's greater son, who was cursed and expelled and crucified and forgotten outside the camp so that you could be brought in as sons and daughters. He wore the identity of the forsaken and forgotten one so that he could take it into the grave with him. And when he rose again, it stayed there. All that's left for you now is the confidence of sons that your Father hears you and He cannot and will not forsake you. That soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to His foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our Father, train us how to talk, how to sing, how to grieve, how to hurt, how to cry out. Grant that we would be shaped by your word. Shaped by it. Grant that we would find in Psalm 13 and, and by your will in plenty of other places. The words to not only express our hearts, but to speak how you have taught us that we might be comforted by the, the sure steadfastness of, of your words. Let, let, us, let us find in your word, Father, this a wall to lean against that doesn't move. And so I pray for myself, for my household, for my wife and my daughter, for this congregation. Lord, that you would steady and strengthen us by the very food of your word. That you would feed us at your table. That as we go to the work that you set before us throughout this week, we would do so with joy. Counting it all joy, whatever we face. This will not happen apart from your grace, so we ask for it now and for the wisdom to face such things. 
In Jesus' name, amen.